If you ask people what they remember about the 2008 monetary crisis, some people might say subprime mortgages, but more often than not, you're going to hear the, the names of the biggest players. You're going to hear about Lehman Brothers and Bear Stearns, AIG, Wachovia, the massive bailout at Citigroup, too big to fail. You might also hear, if you're European or in the UK, about the nationalizations or the near nationalizations of big banks like the Royal Bank of Scotland or Lloyd's in Germany and in France and in Belgium and the Netherlands. It was the largest banks who caught your attention. And as they failed or nearly failed, it was synonymous with what people today call a, mon a financial crisis, but in point of fact was actually a monetary crisis. And you don't have to take my word for it either. We, let's, let's take the word of none other than recently awarded Nobel laureate, Mr. Ben Bernanke, who was then the chairman of the Federal Reserve during all this Lehman Brothers AIG volatility. In February 2010, Mr. Bernanke told Congress, liquidity pressures in financial markets were not limited to the United States. And intense strains in the global dollar funding markets began to spill over to U.S. markets. In response, the Federal Reserve entered into temporary currency swap agreements with major foreign central banks. I bet you that you only heard about the last part of that sentence and not much about the first part of the quote there. Global dollar funding markets. And while Bernanke said that they entered into currency swaps arrangements, currency swap with arrangements, and he said that maybe those helped. What he didn't say is that almost certainly they didn't, because while the swap arrangements had been ongoing since December of 2007, the crisis happened anyway. And as the Fed accelerated use of those swaps throughout the worst of it in 2008, the crisis continued all the way into 2009. Intense strains in global dollar funding markets. That was what united failures. The big names that we remember, Lehman Brothers and all those in the United States with Barclays and Lloyds and Royal Bank of Scotland and the big European firms, the Swiss banks that were hammered in particularly hard. Intense strains in global dollar funding markets. But because we put those two things together, the big name failures with some kind of strain, we think that, we're led to think that, in the absence of further failures, there must not be the same strain, or there must not be the same level of strain. In March of 2020, for example, strains in global dollar funding markets got to be as bad as they were in some of the worst parts of 2008, particularly with repo and collateral, but no Lehman. No Bear Stearns, no big name for the public to say, aha, this was a global monetary crisis. Instead, people think the Federal Reserve performed admirably and even saved the world. In fact, Jay Powell said as much not that long ago. Maybe our standards for what counts as intense strains in global dollar funding markets need to be re-examined. After all, I don't think we're going to have another Lehman Brothers. In fact, I'm pretty sure we'll never have another Lehman Brothers, at least not in my lifetime or my generation's lifetime, because history doesn't repeat that way. But that doesn't mean that everything is hunky-dory and fine. Because after all, something big is bothering the markets, all of them, Germany's, US, Canada, swaps, currency, 
All of them. They're all saying eh, something's wrong. Now, recession, macroeconomic circumstances, uh, potential for a nasty recession, that's certainly part of it. But what if we have a nasty recession and a and the uh, reemergence of intense strains in global dollar funding markets that begin to spill over everywhere? Let's talk about that today. But first, I'm Jeff. This is Eurodollar University. Thank you very much for joining me. I do appreciate it. If you're interested, Eurodollar University memberships available. We have exclusive uh, background and uh, uh, videos and content about the nature of the world's monetary system, what we mean when we talk about intense strains in global dollar funding markets, what are those markets and how do they work and how do they spill over here, hither and yon, Eurodollar University memberships, as well as research subscriptions, daily briefing I do in partnership with Markets Insider Pro, as well as the deep dive analysis, which we often dive deep into global dollar funding markets, whether they're strained or not, and what the consequences of those strains might be. All the information for you is at eurodollar.university. So something is bothering financial markets. Something is bothering curves to the point that they're ridiculously inverted. And of course, the immediate suspect is macroeconomic conditions. The global global economy just is not doing all that well, despite recent proclamations that it's doing incredibly well. We've got inverted curves, but we also have got one key market, which is which all along, all throughout this soft landing, now no landing nonsense has said, we're not seeing it here. And I'm talking about global oil, in particular WTI. The WTI curve remains in contango, which, as I just mentioned recently in an interview with Eric Townsend and Macro Voices, we both together said, there's no reason whatsoever for even to be this small sliver of contango that we're seeing, let alone persistent contango, given the, supply, sub, the tight supply constraints globally, as well as domestically. WTI should not be in contango. And yet, Despite the fact that China is reopening and the U.S. supposedly, not a fact, but allegedly is doing really well, and Europe is coming roaring back to life, the major themes behind what used to be soft landing fever, now no landing fever, all three of those have not been priced into the oil market. In fact, it's been the opposite. More and more, there is concerns that something is going on negatively, which is impacting the global economy, but especially the demand for crude oil. And we see that most prominently in the domestic inventory numbers. The uh, U.S. Energy Information Administration just put out more estimates for the latest week, which was last week, and another large crude stock build, 7.6 million barrels which brings the total increase for just this year. And I think it's only been, what, seven weeks now? 58.4 million barrels. The amount of crew that is pouring into storage in the domestic uh, U.S. system is massive. How can that be if supply isn't contributing a lot more? The only answer has to be because demand is not coming back the way everybody thinks, or coming back. Demand isn't at all what everybody thinks it is. And this, this quote after the oil numbers uh, were released today kind of got my attention. It's from Bloomberg Intelligence senior oil and gas analyst who says, hopes that returning China demand would support a recovery are fading. Imagine that. As consumption catalysts are having less of an impact 
than expected. In fact, they're not having much of an impact at all, which has told us, like all these financial curves, that maybe China reopening was more myth than fact. Maybe the U.S. economy is not, in fact, robust. Maybe the labor market statistics are, as they have been in past cycles, misleading. Maybe Europe isn't doing all that well. And if so, maybe we also need to re-examine what we think of when we think of intense strains in global dollar funding conditions that, doesn't, that don't include maybe the next failure of Lehman Brothers. And what we're going to talk about for the rest of this episode, I don't want to be a scaremonger. I'm not trying to scare people into thinking that the world is ending. That's not the point here. What I'm saying is the markets are already telling us they're worried, ultra worried about some pretty bad scenarios. And it's incumbent upon us to try to figure out what those might be. There are legitimate risks to the global system that we should be well aware of. This doesn't mean the world is going to end. It doesn't mean that we're going to repeat something like 2008, but it doesn't, it doesn't preclude some really ugly scenarios either. So instead of imagining another Lehman Brothers, imagining large, systemically important banks failing, what would the world look like instead of large banks? It was entire countries. Sri Lanka, as you might have heard, has found itself in an enormous, incredible mess. Sri Lanka, essentially, which is, I mean, it, it's geographically, it's not very large, but it's a country of 22 million people. It's, it's a pretty substantial place. Now, the merchandise trade deficit in Sri Lanka exploded about, about a dozen years ago. Wouldn't you, wouldn't you believe it? In the aftermath of the so-called 2008 financial crisis, which is really a monetary crisis, Suddenly, Sri Lanka had more imports and less exports, or not as much growth in exports and more growth in imports. More dollars were required. But up until around 2017 and 2018, the country was able to fill in this dollar funding gap with remittances by Sri Lankans abroad who are working abroad, who could find work abroad and send foreign currency money, largely US dollars, home. Not physical US dollars, of course as well as um, tourism. Sri Lanka is a large global tourism destination with a, with a once thriving tourism industry, which brought in all sorts of foreign currency into the country, given that country access to at least foreign currency assets. Things started to really go wrong in 2018 and then big time in 2019. And then of course, 2020, all bets were off. In 2018, Globally synchronized growth proved to be nothing more than a bumper sticker. And already Sri Lanka found itself in, in trouble as tourism started to plateau, as well as remittances from abroad, they didn't grow in the way that Sri Lanka needed because the global economy wasn't doing as well as everybody said it was. But then in 2019, there was, a, a, I think it was a series of bombings or a single bombing, uh, I think Easter 2019, which just decimated the tourism industry, along with COVID-19, the pandemic shuts down, shutdowns. And in the wake of those, Sri Lanka's remittances, its tourism, none of that ever came back, which suddenly meant that the country found itself with an enormous hole, enormous dollar funding gap. And in steps a country, a banking system, the Chinese. The Chinese said, we'll be happy to help you out, Mr. Sri Lanka, Mr. and Mrs. Sri Lanka, because that's kind of what we've been doing lately. 
And so in late 2020, facing an enormous currency shortfall, the Export-Import Bank of China loaned Sri Lanka $2.83 billion to get them through. But contrary to what everybody was told about 21 and 22, the global economy really didn't improve all that much. And for those countries who were very heavily reliant on imports, rather than boom, it was as if it was, it was another nightmare because now you had to pay more for basic necessities and probably getting less of those basic necessities as well as straining your currency budget. As a consequence, last year, Sri Lanka basically fell apart. Um, they've been rescued or be, tried to be rescued by various things, including a moratorium that was offered just recently from China's Export-Import Bank, as well as the country trying to secure a $2.9 billion loan from the IMF, just so that they can keep up the basic necessities of life as the country is, is stuck in what seems to be a downward spiral. As bad as that is, a country of 22 million people facing that type of, of monetary and economic shortfall, how about a country that is 10 times more populous, a country that has an enormous military, has nuclear weapons, and a long-standing border, borders dispute with another country that has a huge military and nuclear weapons? I'm talking about Pakistan. Promises of global growth in the last 14 years, ever since Bernanke said we fixed the problem with dollar swaps and other methods, the global economy hasn't reacted in the same way. And you can see Pakistan has had this major up and down in its foreign currency reserves, as well as this ups and downs, especially recently, in its economy. And all signs point to its economy underperforming massively in 21 and 22. Last year, somewhat related to uh, heavy rains and monsoons that were really bad, but also the fact that, again, Countries around the world were not booming in 21 and 22 when they were required to import a lot of their basic necessities, like Pakistan is. Instead, they were massively drained of their foreign currencies. And the only way they could get any sort of aid or any way of any, uh, obtain any funding to fill in those gaps was largely through the largesse of their Chinese bank partners, who at the time were more than willing to fill in the gaps or fill in the shortfalls. Where this intersects with all of the rest of the stuff, uh, the Eurodollar system, normally you would expect the Eurodollar banks, the large banks that we used to talk about 15 years ago, to be filling those gaps, to be asking for good quality collateral in, in exchange for foreign currency loans that they're not offering these days and leaving these countries to go hat in hand only to the Chinese. And the Chinese have, of course, offered all sorts of loans all over, really for the last, uh, last decade or so as the global economy has tailed off. Something called the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, which began in 2013, and I believe about $62 billion was spent developing it. Most of it borrowed money. Most of it lent to Pakistan and various Pakistani entities through Chinese banks which has not paid off in terms of economic growth because these government projects don't ever pay off in terms of economic growth. They're meant to take advantage of economic growth if assuming that economic growth happens. And when economic growth across the world doesn't happen, 
these countries are stuck with both a credit problem and more immediately, a money problem that can't be met because like Lehman Brothers a dozen years ago, they don't have the collateral to put up to secure more funding. Even the Chinese are saying, maybe not. Now, China just the other day offered a loan of 700 million to help replenish uh, Pakistan's really low level of foreign currency. It got down under $3 billion just a couple weeks ago at the start of February. But now, I mean, China, or Pakistan's in such rough shape that Pakistan's defense minister, I'm not going to say his name because I'll butcher it, Kawaji Asif. Now, normally you expect politicians in these places to be as even keel as possible, to project confidence, because the last thing you want to do in a bad situation like this is make it worse. But, their def but Pakistan's defense minister just this past Sunday came out with this statement. You may have learned that Pakistan is going bankrupt or that a default or meltdown is taking place. It has already taken place. We are living in a bankrupt country. Now, maybe he had uh, political reasons for making that statement or whatever, but normally you don't see senior government officials on TV talking about the country already being bankrupt. And the only reason I bring it up, again, I'm not trying to scare people, but I'm just trying to illustrate how serious the situation is in Pakistan, where regular businesses can't get currency to participate in, in the global economy, the imports, imports have been restricted. The country had a massive blackout just a, a little, about a month ago, January 23rd. It was caused supposedly by a, a surge, but it just goes to show the, the state of the infrastructure and spending and uh, 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 the infrastructure and uh, everything in Pakistan that the, almost the entire country experienced a blackout after what was a minor surge. The country is in deep trouble. It's in deep trouble in a way we would recognize uh, uh, 13 years ago, or 14 years ago, however many years has it been, geez, 14 years now, with something like Lehman Brothers or AIG. On the brink of insolvency and nobody willing to step up because, nobody willing outside the Chinese to step up because there is no money to do so. And even though the Chinese have been willing to do so, have been stepping up so far, They've only been doing it, and they may not be able to do it much longer. In other words, China finds itself in the same sort of situation, not as bad, but in the same, facing the same constraints as these other places like Sri Lanka and Pakistan. The Chinese have their own problems, which means maybe China won't be able to come riding to the rescue of these various countries for much longer. In fact, maybe that's why We've been hearing about Pakistan and Sri Lanka over the last, say, 12 months or so because the Chinese have their own problems. And with their, they, if they're unwilling or unable to supply dollars to these troubled places, what does that look like? Well, I'll tell you what it looks like. It looks like what the Reserve Bank of India said last summer. The Reserve Bank of India said, Emerging market economies are experiencing capital outflows and reserve losses, which are exacerbating risks to their growth and financial stability. They're not risks to growth and financial stability. It is harm growth and financial and monetary instability, not in some small tucked away out of the, out of the way uh, places around the far flung places around the world, 
Well, now we're talking about major countries. And it wasn't all that long ago where people were suddenly paying attention to the UK for many of the same reasons. Intense strains in global dollar funding doesn't necessarily mean Lehman Brothers. And if it doesn't mean Lehman Brothers, and it does mean Pakistan, what would all of that actually mean? Maybe that's why curves, markets, everything is priced as if everybody needs to be hedged to the absolute maximum. I'm Jeff. This is Eurodollar University. Thank you very much for joining me. As always, a huge sincere thank you to Eurodollar University members and our research subscribers. Until next time, take care.